Hello and welcome to the Hot House Transplants podcast. I am your host, Matt Duffy. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are talking with the men and women who contributed to the Hot House Transplants book released back in 1997, over 25 years ago. You can see our website, hothousetransplants.com. That's where all the episodes are going to be released, the past ones, the future ones. I would encourage you, if you haven't, go back and listen to the first couple of episodes of the podcast. It's going to tell you a lot about why we're doing the podcast, and especially it's going to tell you about what the original Hot House Transplants book was about and why we did it in the first place. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you so much again for listening. Well, welcome to another episode of the Hot House Transplant Podcast. I am your host, Matt Duffy. Today with me is Jesse Payne, which... It's going to be an unusual time simply because in this particular context, I am the interviewee and I've asked Jesse to be the interviewer. So thank you for doing this. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Thanks for asking me. It's, it's going to be fun. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It's, it is, this is the first time anything like this has ever happened to me. Oh, really? Yes. Are your palms sweaty? No, but I feel like you just started an Eminem <laughs> song or something. No, but I'm excited because I... As a good homeschooler, is that, is that a candy song? Eminem song? Yes. Okay, This good. is, yeah, this is not the Eminem everybody's thinking of. Okay. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, no, but I've been, I've been, I'm excited about it. And this, this goes to a couple of the reasons why I specifically asked you, mm-hmm. which was, I love the idea of somebody looking from the outside into my life and asking questions that maybe I either don't know mm-hmm. should be asked or I know should be asked, but I don't want anybody to you don't ask. Want anybody to ask. Mm-hmm. And in the three years I've known you, you don't have an issue doing that. And you're familiar with, uh, you're, you're familiar with engaging people enough mm-hmm. that I know you know how to do that. But you're one of the few people I know that also happens to share a homeschool background we were at HSLDA, I think, just maybe six months apart, a year apart. Yeah, I wasn't at HSLDA, but I was at Patrick Henry that shared the same building. Okay, that's yep. what it was. Yep. So there was this, there's a familiarity with yes. certain things that we've experienced. And then your wife was homeschooled, Crystal. Yep. So was I. Yeah. Which for most, I, I mean, I was thinking about it. It was actually probably exactly half of my education was homeschooled. Okay. So, but it's not, this isn't about me. This is about you. So <laughs> with that, we'll see how this goes. But I am basically turning this over to you, and I'm going to let you do whatever you want. Sure. And I will not run out of the room. Well, I, th- I thought I'd start this with a little bit of background. So it's actually pretty funny how we got to where we are. You know, you've, Wait, I, don't, you I, and I, I don't know, or? I don't know how much you are in, in Instagram, but you, you always see the, these reels on Instagram or, and it's a, a picture of somebody in a very precarious spot. And this music starts playing. It's like this, and then it says, and you wonder how I got to this place. And they show a different other crazy pictures of how they got into that predicament. So um, I've, let's see, how many years ago? About three years ago, probably. Yeah. We started in... Um, uh, I actually think you guys started going to our church here three years ago. Yeah, a little over. Yep. And you hit the ground running and wanted to get involved. And 
started uh, getting involved with the discipleship group that another guy and I were leading. And actually, the grand leader of the discipleship group is somebody else, and then he just put us in a smaller group, and you were put into our group. And I can't, I don't know, I don't know if, in, in this discipleship group, we went and we dug down deep. We dug down deep to all those people that were present. That said, I don't think I knew you closer when we ended than when we started because you only showed up to half of them. Yep. <laughs> but and it's like the first half too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, th- I think we scared you off is what it was. I never told you why. No. I feel like I've told this to some people. Maybe, maybe you did. I mean, I don't, it, the, the, the bottom line was, and this is such a digression, but the bottom line was it's such a overwhelming amount of yes. deep stuff that what ended up happening was I got to that point where they talked about the pride shame cycle. Mm-hmm. And I, I had shared, like that utterly changed. And this actually is interesting because this actually ties into my story mm-hmm. with the homeschooling and everything. But it utterly changed my entire uh, perspective on myself in God's eyes that at that point there was almost this like I I need to I need to rest in that because it literally changed the way I thought the way I felt mm-hmm. spiritually emotionally mentally about my entire life my entire being so it was almost like then when I showed up a couple times after that I could not focus mm. it was just I couldn't focus and I felt like I was just I was almost in the way by being there because I knew I could not really participate or mm. offer anything. Well, you... And then work became insane. Yeah. And it was hard. I just thought that so was just, an excuse. It, no. <laughs> yeah. yes, no, no yes, well, no, so. and, and you always, you took it in so well. When, and I could tell that you were just... Because we went deep fast. Yeah. And I could see how it would be very overwhelming. Um really from the get-go because it really started digging down deep and getting into these things that, and honestly, then, so we started talking about these things at church here, actually here not too long ago, just hanging around during worship talking. Instead of being in service, <laughs> which has continued to this yes. day. I'm yes. I'm a terrible church attender because I'm always out in the lobby spending well, time with exactly. guys yeah. doing important things. And, but that's, honestly, that's where you where the rubber meets the road where real fellowship happens, you know, um, by the coffee bar. Exactly. I just want to make that by the good clear. coffee bar. Good coffee. Yes. Jesse's saying this because he <laughs> helps to run the coffee bar. <laughs> I buy the coffee. Um, but so we started having a conversation. These little things started popping up while we were talking and realizing, Oh, we've got these things in common. And I never, in three years that I've known you, ever had put two and two together of your last name and having been homeschooled I was like wait a minute you're Kathy Duffy's son and uh, I thought I'd, I'd met a superstar right there but not really I'm just yeah you know, let's just, just stop right uh, there. help your ego a little bit but but no um, then that led to some really good conversations that I think that had I known that when we were going through discipleship Maybe we could have dug down deeper at that time, but I don't think you were ready for it at the time. No. So you're ready now, though. Yeah, I think so. I think that's 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 what happened in that year one with you guys was a lot of the, and this 
it all ties ironically into my upbringing and everything. Mm-hmm. But it, so much of what I struggled with and the reasons I hid from everybody for so long got sort of freed up. Like God did something that I can only consider miraculous in that group on that day. I will never forget it. That I feel like that burden of feeling like I had to measure up mm-hmm. was released. And being terrified that I had to be something very specific to be lovable by people was gone. Mm. And that was the first time in my life that I can remember that, that I didn't have that anymore. And, and not having that sense of I have to, you know, do certain things a certain way. I have to know a certain amount of Bible. I have to be this kind of person. I have to be involved with these kinds of things or people won't like me. Having that gone mm-hmm. gives so much freedom to then be willing to say, yeah, I'm actually kind of a screwed up person. Mm. I struggle with these things. I'm, I don't know how to do this. I'm, I, I fall short in this area. I fall short in that and not feel like, Oh, my whole world's going to fall apart all of a sudden and mm. nobody's going to want anything to do with me. Yeah. And it's very freeing. So much it. freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, an apex moment for you yeah. to come right. to that realization. Right. So at that apex moment, let's just back up and talk about how you got there. We'll start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. That's backing up a lot. That's like <laughs> 40 years of backing up. So tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Where you grew up. Where you went to school. And we can get into dysfunction a lot easier of that. Okay. <laughs> it is much easier. It, it's, Actually, I want to get into the functionalities too because... You know, yeah, I'm, I'm teasing, you know, we, and as former homeschoolers, we like to say, talk about the dysfunctionalities, but in every situation, there's always a, like what we talked about in discipleship in year one, there's light and, and there's, or there's the gold and then there's the shadow that right. is cast from the, from that gold. Yep. There's always something good and there's always something that you need to realize that's there that is not so good. So. Right. And that's the foundation of the podcast really was, was looking around life and realizing that as I was able to process more honestly through my past and my own family, to be able to look and say, there are positives, there are negatives. And, and that's what really sparked wanting so much to do this follow-up was, mm-hmm. I want there to be this honesty for people to acknowledge some of the things that we personally experienced with homeschooling, especially more recently, mm-hmm. that make me go, I'm... I just think this is something people need to be aware of and we should be honest as a community about what dangers could be out there. Mm -hmm. Not to say that you shouldn't homeschool, but just say, hey, at least let's be honest about some of these things so that people are more informed going into it. Like, hey, be watching out for this. Maybe consider this, you Mm -hmm. know. And so I really want there to be that honesty. So there's no pro or con. It's just, yeah, it's exactly what you said. I want there to be the willingness to just say, hey, here's the good, here's the bad from my experience. Mm-hmm. Take it for what it's worth. Um, I think that, that it's really important to do that because we're kind of, I don't know if we'd be considered second generation, probably. I at think least. so, yeah. Um, because back in the 80s, early 90s, you know, when kind of was the heyday of, of everything started, people started, what is homeschooling and getting into it? I, I was just thinking about it earlier today, how how ironic it is that, you know, we experienced the, um, 
how the, the negative perception of homeschooling, you know, everybody was like, oh, what about socialization, X, Y, and Z? When two years ago, the same people that were in charge that were trying to crack down on home education were actually saying, no, you need to homeschool during COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it became mainstream, yeah. like overnight almost, and, and just so ironic. But anyway, yeah. back to you. Well, it, it, it's, it's interesting because you brought up, I think th- there's the, always this sort of um, pretentious tension feels like a good band name. Um, <laughs> because my mom was so heavily involved with homeschooling from the earliest memories I have. Mm-hmm. And I did, in fact, by the time people listen to this podcast, they will have heard my interview with her. And it was really neat to talk about the foundation of it all. But but she and my dad really felt like this was something God wanted them to do. So they began to homeschool very early 80s. Mm. And be, there was just nothing out there. It was completely new. And um, they didn't know what it was supposed to look like. And it, and it was th- technically illegal to do this in the state of California. Because you were in California, right? Yeah. And it, yet, was it, was, it was crazy out there. In a lot of states, it was illegal back then. And um, so they, they started out. And, and one of the things that caused them to want to start homeschooling, it, it was primarily they just felt like God wanted them to do it. Mm-hmm. But it just so happened that my my brothers were, I think, in first or maybe third grade in a Christian private school locally. But just different learning abilities, learning styles. One, my oldest brother, I think, was not doing well. Hmm. Um, he needed to run around. He needed freedom and space. He, he had a very difficult time sitting in a classroom. And um, I don't know if there was any issues with my middle brother, but... Um, she began to look at homeschooling and it was just one of these, well, we're supposed to do this. God wants us to do this. Do you know what it was that was kind of the impetus that gave her the idea of doing something that was illegal? No, literally she said, we just felt like God wanted us to start homeschooling. Did, did she hear like the focus on the family radio broadcast, anything like that, that she can point to and say, Hey, yeah, this is where we, we heard from it. No, I mean there, there was, she did talk about, there was a, a guy that wrote a book. I, I honestly forget what the name was. Um, somebody had talked about the something about homeschooling. Mm-hmm. I think she had read a book that she had mentioned, maybe okay. put the idea in her head. But I grew up always thinking like there was this, my children aren't doing well in school. They're not learning well. We have to do something different. We need to homeschool. But I was wrong. It was interesting to find out that I was wrong. Hmm. But so she got into it. She found other, you know, like families, parents that kind of collaborated a little bit growing up and got into it. And from there, the issue was, this is unheard of nowadays, but there was no curriculum. There was no um, learning methods. There was no teaching styles. This stuff just didn't exist that you couldn't just, you couldn't just, oh, we're going to school, go purchase your box curriculum and get going. It wasn't around. And so she began to make this stuff up, basically, figure things out, um, start doing a lot of research, a lot of reading, and then she began to create. And so that's where her, Math Mouse games. I remember still making those at our house and assembling them from their mm-hmm. early infancy. And and then she got into the books that she wrote, the curriculum manuals. And those were, the early on ones were talking about the fact that people learn different, learning mm-hmm. styles. Um, what did she do before starting out? And what did your dad do? As far as like, was she a writer? Was, was there any skills that she took or that they both built upon to kind of start up the 
no uh, their writing or anything? I think the first thing that came to my brain when you said that was, well, I wasn't born. How would I know? Um, <laughs> the she she was a home ec or textiles major in college, I think. Okay, she was doing basket weaving and things like that. She's very good. She was making. Oh, baskets. really? Yeah. So she, did, so is she like? Did she major in basket weaving? I mean, I heard that that was a part of. It, I think it was a textiles major. But that was a big part of it, like sewing baskets. Like uh-huh. that's unheard of. That would be so sexist to, to even suggest something. But yeah, she was brilliant at that. I remember her making baskets and wicker chairs and all sorts of stuff. She was very good. I, I was in style her, back then, Todu. It's coming back in style. I hate to tell you, but um, my dad was a. Um, he worked at Sears. I think he was a manager at Sears. Okay. For those of you that don't know what a Sears is, look it up. It's it's still Did around. Did you still have Craftsman tools? Oh. We still have his drill that weighs 800 pounds of solid <laughs> steel and still works. Now, can um, you take those to Lowe's and get those replaced? That's what I want to know. That's an I think interesting question. I think you can. Lifetime warranty. Yep. I might have to check that out. No, I don't think they had anything specific. Like They weren't trained educators, so to speak, okay. or teachers. They were just parents that decided to do something. And, um, and I mean, for my mom, that just grew. I remember... From the earliest stage, she was making these games, writing these books, and it, mm-hmm. and then she started. I don't even know how it started, but as the homeschooling movement grew and grew, she knew how to just meet people that were of like mind all over the country, and it just grew, grew, grew. And she was writing more books, mm-hmm. and more more games, and she was traveling. That she was speaking everywhere and going to the homeschool conferences. And I still don't know all of the things she was involved in. Quite quite frankly, there were so many things and so many people she knew, and. Um, so my context from an earlier, from my earlier memories was I sort of came into this world of her doing all of those things and her homeschooling us and um, being with other families a lot, a lot of group classes growing up, a lot of time with other friends, especially Mike Thorpe, who's one of mm-hmm. the people in the book. Our families have grown up together forever. And um, I was the one that ended up traveling with her to these conferences from a very early age. What I was told was if she left me home, my brothers would kill me. So she took me, and my brothers say this is true. Um, it's probably true. So she took me, and so I had a very unusual childhood, from my opinion at least, because I was on planes a lot with her, going to the conventions. Uh-huh. We would always stay with homeschool families. So you'd meet a lot of homeschool families. Um, and then when you came back, it was this combination of sort of the business and helping run the business, we'd be shrink wrapping sure. books and packaging. And, and how old were you at this time when you were doing this? I mean, young, six, seven, okay. eight, all the way through high school. We were, it was just, that was life. Sure. Um, yeah, that was life. And then in between that, a lot of, um, it was sort of this combination of group classes and then individual teaching. Mm-hmm. So, we had this, we had families we gathered together with a lot and, and we would get passed around. So my mom would teach some of the kids a, a topic and then you'd go to another person's house and they would teach English and another one would teach sure. Spanish, you know, which was neat. It was sort of a group dynamic for our, our yeah. education. Well, and, and you take kind of the strengths and weaknesses of different people right. to help educate your kids yeah, and most think, parents aren't prepared to teach everything to their kids yeah. it's just not we're not designed that way it seems like so um well the re- one of the reason when what you were saying about traveling with your with your mom um kind of resonated with me in a way because uh for those that don't know my wife crystal Payne, she 
used to speak at homeschool conferences quite a bit. And we did the same thing with our, our kids and my son, especially. And, and he kind of got an, an independent, um, grew more confidence and independence and traveling. And, and I mean, like he's, is it Silas? Silas. Yeah. Okay. He's, that makes sense. He's 13 now. I mean, we could send the kid on a plane by himself and he'd do just fine yeah. because of the experience that he's had helping out and traveling and things. Did that affect you in a positive way as well? Like doing all those things, were you able to glean from other speakers at the homeschool conferences or were you pretty much cloistered at a certain booth? I, I was, it was interesting. It probably did help some of that because um, I was manning our table. So she would be out speaking and I would mm-hmm. man the table and I would sell her stuff, which I think developed in me the sales personality of schmoozing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess it did give me confidence, but in, in, traveling around all these conventions also, there were a lot of the same people. That's true. And so, and they would bring their kids. And so yes. there almost became this like in, a friend group. Almost, yeah. You'd go to this conference in this state, and of course, these other families are all there, and these other kids, and you'd you'd like, oh yeah, I know you guys. We'd go out and hang and, mm-hmm. and play. So, um, yeah, I'm sure it did. It gave me a comfort level with people and interacting with people and dialoguing with people. I think, yeah, yeah, it did. But but it also, I think, it 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 made it hard to relate to kids my age. I think to some degree because then I would come home. And I, re- I remember always having a difficult time knowing, this is going to sound weird, but knowing who I was. So when I came home, and this is all sort of looking back on my life that mm-hmm. I sort of kind yeah. of put this together, that I would, I would, I really didn't feel like I had my own sort of individual identity. And so I'd come back from these trips you jump back into the cycle of the classes and I was in Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, all that, which I loved. But when it came to friends, I would usually always sort of emulate and become like my friends. Hmm. So their interests, their manner of dress, the styles, I would sort of morph. And and it was very fascinating to kind of think back who were the major friends I had from the earlier ages. Mm-hmm. And from the earliest age, even my old neighbor across the street who wasn't a Christian, wasn't a homeschooler. I remember looking back, oh, yeah, I took on and I liked those things because he did. Hmm. And then, oh, yeah, this next person that I spent a lot of time with, I started dressing like him. I started being interested, so to speak, in the things he would. And I can I can track that like through my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's a causation there, but I, I know I remember feeling like there, there was just this sort of enigmatic perspective if I looked in. Mm-hmm. and l- it felt like it was partially associated because I was just kind of doing all these different things, and I don't think I really understood or developed some of those areas of my life to have my own identity. I was, as you say, it's hilarious now, but I was Kathy Duffy's son, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of my identity. I don't know if my brothers felt the same way, but my dad was Kathy Duffy's husband. I was mm-hmm. Kathy Duffy's son, and that's not a bad thing, but I, th- but I think what ended up happening was I didn't really develop your own personal identity as, as much at least. I don't know that that's true, but looking back, I, I'm not sure why I didn't really have an individual identity that I can point to. Especially, know, time, so. especially in the bubble that is the homeschool conference community. Oh yeah, yeah. You, I could see where, Oh, 
You're Matt? You're Kathy's son? Oh, aren't you special? Yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. There was a lot of, which is why it feels, this is why you didn't know who I was early on, because it feels so pretentious to come into an environment and go like, you should all know me and think I'm great because of who my mother was. Right. That to me was just like, I want nothing to do with that because that's more of that. Like my identity is wrapped up in who she is then. You, and I didn't. You're realizing that now, but did you enjoy that then? Yeah. I think I loved the, the, the sense of it. And that's, that's part of what fed into, I think what happened with me was you get used to that almost notoriety mm-hmm. as a little kid and, and you don't necessarily know what it is or why it's there, but there's something that's like, Oh, you're special. Mm-hmm. Why are you special? Mm-hmm. Well, because of who you're associated with mm. versus your own individual identity. And, and that wasn't um, malicious. Like my parent, my mom, did, they didn't do anything to cause that. It's just one of those. Oh, I think it's a human nature thing. Yeah. And I think just happened. That was the dynamic that happened. The other thing that happened was I think in hindsight, growing up the, there was so much focus um, because my brothers were older and I was the younger. I, I, there was so much focus. She had to deal with their education first. Mm-hmm. They were older. And so she was figuring out worldview courses and all this stuff. And so I, I feel like she worked so hard to make sure everything was set up for them. I felt like I sort of came in behind mm-hmm. and, and got the wake of it. It's not that I didn't get some great opportunities, but I think I felt like um, most of what was going on was so focused on her developing the things that she was doing, which were so good, and then mm-hmm. paving the way for my brothers. I was almost along for the ride, I think, a lot of the time. Not not in a bad way. She didn't mean anything bad by that. That's just sort of how I, I sort of process it looking mm-hmm. back. Do you think that you benefited from being in that wake a little bit, though? And, like, so they went through these, their education, received the education that was kind of developed for them. Did you receive the benefit of that? Maybe more of a refined process than by the time it came to you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Because there was my older brothers and then the, the friend group that was their age got a lot of those classes and then me, and there was probably seven or eight of us or more who then would get those same classes. Typically not Mm -hmm. always like they did a worldview class with summit ministries back when, um, David Noble, I think, was mm-hmm. first putting that together 25, 30 years ago. I don't even remember now. So they got to do that. And then we were supposed to go through a similar one, I think. But it gave them the opportunity, again, because wasn't this stuff wasn't out there. It was mm-hmm. sort of like, well, let's try this and see how it works. You know, And you, you had all these companies that, like Abeka and Bob Jones, who were all releasing a lot of curriculum um, that homeschoolers could use and would work. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of trying out process. I think. And so, yeah, we got a little bit of that advantage, I think. Did... Those start around the same time that your mom started doing the, the curriculum that she did. Yeah. I'm not positive. It sounded like they, yeah, you know what? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't there very much. It seems like, but it seems like the ability to use those in the homeschool world expanded pretty drastically, but Mike, I'm not sure. No, I'm thinking so probably there. so. I thought that the, like the Bob Jones curriculum and I don't know about the Abeka, but that, it was kind of a spinoff on what they could use at their schooling. I think that's right. You know, they had, I think Bob Jones has their own like elementary school there. And so they probably took some of that curriculum and made it available for homeschoolers. Yeah, that would make sense. And, and because my mom's books were curriculum manuals, she would get all of this curriculum and she was reviewing it. 
and writing about it in her book. And then people would buy her book and go, uh-huh. I have these age kids, these learning styles. And she would organize and say, well, if you have these age kids and they're these learning styles, here's recommendations for all of the things you might look at for those kids. It was brilliant. Like mm-hmm. it's what the homeschool world needed sure. at that time. Yeah. It's like a digest. Yeah. And so she was getting so much we have, and she still has to this day, bookshelf upon bookshelf upon bookshelf upon bookshelf of curriculum and things that are sent to her to review and to look through and, and that her website that I think it's Kathy Duffy reviews is mm-hmm. still massive. And she does the wow. same thing because the desire for people um, to be able to go somewhere and find out something about these curriculums and how they might affect or be used for their kids was huge. So, and yeah, this is more so your education is more traditional education. Would you say traditional and yeah, traditional in the a sense of like you got science you have math you've got you know certain subject matters that that you go through not you're not say doing a classical method there was a big mixture i think in general it was traditional but we did we we did a lot of different stuff i think because she was figuring it out mm-hmm. they tried we had just a lot of stuff okay um i'd say it was mostly book so I guess traditional, um, but we did a lot of hands-on, a lot of field trips, a lot of um, a lot of talking, discussion, mm-hmm. um, education. So more Socratic to some yeah. degree. Especially my brothers, I think they got much more into that. Um, it it's weird because when you ask that question, I don't I don't know that I've ever thought about how you would define the kind of education I got. Mm-hmm. It was my education, but I don't. I haven't had any other kind, so I don't know quite how to compare what it, traditional education looks like versus. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess that's kind of more my definition. Like what, you know, when I think of more traditional education, I think of what, what more reflects what say a public school uh, education experience would be when you have your, your different subject matters or, or private school, whatever. Right. That is a traditional that was, yeah, that would, education. Yeah. I think, As opposed to like a, a specialized like trivium based classical oh, model. Yeah. Then it was more traditional. Okay. It was more traditional. A lot of the topics, um, book driven. I think the, the, the mechanism she used would be variable because we did a lot of things where there'd be a big field trip or something and you go out and then you come back and then you, you're dealing with the field trip either by writing essays or mm-hmm. you collected samples and now you're putting those together or. Sure. You know, we dissected. I didn't. I remember them, my brothers, dissecting cow brains and sheep eyes on one of the kitchen tables of our friend's house. <laughs> That's not the typical homeschool experience, I don't think, but pretty rad. I still remember it, for better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, you know, that happened. I think I have pictures of that. In, I should go find those. Yeah. Um, so what do you think that the... What would be some um, positives that you would take from your education experience? think the overall academic value of it was extremely high when i got to junior college um it was it was pretty easy on an academic level you felt pretty prepared yeah yeah i felt like yeah it was it was pretty easy it it was tailored enough that it worked for me it wasn't complicated to learn in in at least in an academic level that was not complicated to learn um, I had a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. She would create the, she would create a week of 
my responsibilities. And it was all this day is these subjects, these chapters, and you get the whole week ahead of time. And so I had the freedom to kind of approach it how I wanted. If the work was done for the day, you could have dinner. If it wasn't done, you have no dinner. Mm. So there was this freedom within the rails to do what you were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also could, and we did, sometimes we'd get the whole week done in a couple of days and we'd collaborate with our friends. Hey, everybody, get all your homework done. Get all your schoolwork done by Tuesday or Wednesday. We get Thursday, Friday off. We're going to play. Yeah. That was kind of cool. I, I valued the ability... And then we were highly creative. A lot of us with our friends were highly creative. So when we got together, it was usually kind of like we were making night costumes and going to this park that had this castle and battling each other with padded swords and full, <laughs> co- you know, we were creative. We did a lot of that. We did a lot of um, archery and we were at a lot of parks and mm-hmm. you know, building stuff. And, and that was good. I think in general, we did a lot of hands on living life with other people. Sure. Um, so that I think that part of it was was good on an ap- academic level. It was really good. Well, it sounds like not that's not just academic though, too, because I mean, the extracurricular play isn't necessarily academic, but you did so in such a way that seemed to cr- to be kind of incentivized, incentive based. Yeah, yeah. That I wonder if that if uh, you have some of that carried over to your job now, you know, and, and how you just, and cause you do a lot of building of things and right. um, having something that is more incentive based in, in that foundation of your play and schooling kind of helps prepare you for later on in work, you know, being more entrepreneurial, you know, having, we, hey, you can choose your own schedule if you want to pursue this activity on your own. And you have the freedom within those bounds that, that you set. Sort of processing the connectivity here. Yeah. It, it's interesting. That's probably true because I long for rails. Mm-hmm. I long for people to give me parameters to work within and then be given freedom from there. And it drives me crazy when I've, when I have rails and then people come in and start to pull me outside of those rails Mm -hmm. in a way that prohibits me from having the freedom or the ability to do the things I'm supposed to be able to do within the rails. And, um, or is it, is the opposite so true if you have absolute creativity and absolute freedom, but you have no response, you know, no rails given to you, no boundaries. Yeah. I That's don't, very interesting. I don't like it. I like there to be, and this is, it's interesting. I, I learned this through some awesome people in, in our, in our, our prior church that I just function better when I'm given or have either provide for myself or something, but when I have rails to work within and that's mm-hmm. roles and responsibilities, it's, um, um, in, in church context, like in a ministry context, I learned this the hard way. I was in different positions at our old church, but I would tend to like very quickly sort of spastically move across <laughs> border of ministries with good intentions because I would see things and, and I would go, Oh, it would be so cool if we could do this. Hey, what do you guys think about this? And we could do this. And you know, mm-hmm. the problem is that that would create chaos then because here these poor people have this guy coming in and saying, what would if we could do this? And wouldn't this would be amazing. And I'll go talk to this person, you know? Right. And that wasn't good. I meant well, but it wasn't good. 
And um, so this guy named Dan would, I think was one of the best ones that ever kind of gave rails Mm -hmm. and knew how to provide that for people without even saying, I'm going to help you with, with some rails to work within. And, you know, it's, it's a spiritual gifting thing almost where you, you tell people in a context, here's the rails now use and allow God to pour through you and use your giftings any way, any way with absolute freedom within those rails. And people thrive when you do that. Mm-hmm. They, just, they thrive. And so that was a really eye-opening experience. But yeah, you're probably right. I hadn't connected sort of, but yeah, it would make sense that growing up the way I grew up, it does actually kind of fit with how I function now. I never really thought of that. I feel like I should keep score here. <laughs> Here's the things Jesse comments or asks. See, this is why I wanted you, because I, you have a way of looking at things that I need somebody to look at. Well, I don't want to so. lose people with my questions that are off the fly too it's like where are you going with this because i, I could see you you were uh you were building kind, an kind, edifice kind of giving me that that look it's like i was i must not be making any sense here that's what editing's for <laughs> when i was doing the first couple of podcasts right. you hear yourself doing a question and you're like i can tell i'm i'm drowning i know what i want to ask but I can tell I'm drowning asking this question. And you're, okay, yeah. whatever. I'm just going to edit that out later and come back and I'll figure out a way to. That's okay. But that was a good question. Yeah, that probably does fit. It does fit. Yeah. Um, so you, th- you think that, you, that your education prepared you for college, junior, junior college. Did, did you go past junior college? No. Got got associates and then said, nope. "See ya." You didn't no get associates. your associates. Five years of junior college. Hey, and hey! How many people can say that? <laughs> you were some of the it's, select few. One, what's crazy? I needed, that you took longer to get an associates that you never got than it does I for it. a bachelor's yeah. degree. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's, I'm impressed. I think this goes to my <laughs> my. There, I had no rails. Okay. I think in hindsight, this was one of the problems. Was undisciplined and no rails leads to sort of this spastic. You can, this matches up to the church thing too. But I went to college having no clue why I was there. Hmm. So I would try classes and I would change majors every semester. And every semester I would do volleyball and every semester I would do like maybe the weight training to the point they wouldn't give us credits for volleyball. My brothers and I, it was great. I like to believe we <laughs> were the results or the, the ones that got the school policy changed. But we did outdoor and indoor volleyball, I think, every single semester, maybe even during the summer, to the point they wouldn't even give us credit for him. And it was pass-fail at that point. But yeah, it was jumping all over the place, trying to figure out what am I supposed to do. Mm. And I never could figure it out. And um, nothing just nothing seemed to fit. And in hindsight, I wish, and maybe they did, but I didn't ever hear it. I don't remember anybody talking about trade schools. But if somebody would have talked to me about trade schools... I probably would have skipped junior college and done a trade school because I'm very hands-on. Mm-hmm. I like I like to do things like that, and I'm I'm not a very I'm not a good academic person in the sense that I'm not good at taking tests. I I struggled, um, I struggled to really process and understand and and memorize information fast and then be able to regurgitate it back. So I did okay in school if I tried. Um, but it just, it was five years of sort of going all over the place and all the way from political science to business to psychology. It, it was just everywhere. 
And then I, I don't remember the point. I actually just stopped, I guess, because we so, started early. Yeah. The way that you can look at it is that you got a liberal arts education while pursuing an associate's degree. Or, or some might say it was more of a, a phys ed degree <laughs> with a few academic classes thrown in. I mean, we took so many. We were doing racquetball, and it was, it was actually kind of fun. But, um, yeah, I don't. Do you think that that's because of your learning style? Because maybe you said you're part of the kind of the basis of, of what was picked for you that your mom picked um, was because of possibly a learning, your learning style. Do you think that you didn't have that going into, going into college that it did not fit your learning, learning style? Cause everybody learns differently. Yeah. I, that could be a component. I, I think there's bigger issues like bigger picture issues that were going on for me. Mm-hmm. One is I feel like I hate that. I, I think what was going on was, I was sort of just, I was just sort of doing the things I was told to do growing up. And I don't remember really being put into the place where it was like, Matt, you're going to really have to kind of think through what the right decision is here for the next year, for the next two years. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it was, okay, you're doing this, now you're doing this, now you're going here, now you're going here, now you're doing this. And Mm -hmm. that was my experience. And... I think what ended up happening, even ironically, HSLDA, when I did the internship, that my mom did all that. I, I, I don't want to say she got me in, but if it hadn't been for her, knowing Mike Smith and or Mike Ferris and Chris Click and all these, right. I doubt I would have ever okay. even been considered. But that was her idea. I, did a, I worked for the government for five years. She knew the connection that got me to that, mm-hmm. and I was an intern for five years. I didn't do anything to earn that. It wasn't my idea. So I think a lot of these things, she was trying to help me with experiences and opportunities. But when I got to college then, it was almost like I'd never learned how to actually look at life and evaluate. Um, there's a word for it. Um, well, anyways, I'd never learned how to evaluate enough to go, okay, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. What's that need to look like? Why am I going to do that? How do I need to get there? What tools, what disciplines? I'd never learned how to do that. And so I think it's almost like releasing somebody into the wild to some degree and saying, mm-hmm. have a good life. So you think you were following the expectations of a, that other people had for you? I wouldn't have said that at the time. I was just following what was placed in front of me. Was, okay. Now do this, now do this, now go here. I didn't think of them as expectations. Internally, I think I was absorbing a lot of things as expectations along the way, but I didn't think about it like that at the time at all. What point did you, do you think you started thinking about it like that, that you were following other people's, what other people wanted you to do instead of what you wanted to do yourself, even though you probably didn't know what you wanted to do yourself. 2014. The apex. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it all sort of tied together with this sort of, and my, and our friend Dan from, from California, he was the one that really loved us enough to look at our life. My wife and I's life at that time, we were in ministry, helping to run the college group. And we were, we were just very heavily involved with ministry. Mm-hmm. And Dan was the first guy I think that came into my life and actually did something very bold and, and basically said, 
I think there's something going on in your marriage that you may not see. And he told us what it was basically, but we didn't understand it. We didn't see it. Hmm. And, and he literally told us, I think you guys need to step out of ministry because you're not going to see this if you're in the ministry context. So I think you need to step out of ministry context and, and we need to let God do what he's going to do to show you what's hmm. going on with your marriage, which was just like wrecked us for two years, just completely wrecked us. It's not his fault. He did one of the most loving things that's ever happened in our life. Mm-hmm. But around 2014, two years later, almost to the month was when I think we finally started to realize um, some of the habits and patterns that had developed in our life. And for me, that was probably the first time I had really started to be able to understand that I basically lived my entire life trying to meet other people's expectations. Mm. But until then, I don't know that I had thought about it that way. And if I did, I was unwilling to, Mm. meaning I may have let, that thought come into my brain at some point, but I refused to acknowledge it or process through it or admit that it was even there or a possibility. So that was the first time. And then the last, um, every year after that has been this slow process of that expanding and expanding. And then ironically, when we moved here and went through year one, that was the moment where I think God sort of miraculously brought all of these pieces together for me and showed me that that reality of, trying to live to meet other people's expectations, whether they intended you to or not, that most of my reality was wrapped up in this idea of trying to meet other people's expectations. Hmm. And that's, that's part of the miracle of when, when we moved here and then going to that group with you guys, where it was just like, this is 40 years in the making to finally be able to look back and start putting pieces together. But yeah, it was really that like 2014 when this really started to, show itself enough to begin to process through it with my wife and Mm. start to put the pieces together. And my mom didn't intend that. I think, no, I know in my teens and twenties, I know that I was bitter towards her, Mm -hmm. but I could never figure out why. But this was sort of the core of it was unintended consequence of feeling like I needed to measure up. And she never said that. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think she, she didn't intentionally do anything to create that, but that nonetheless, that desire for approval from her and from everybody else um, was sort of what became who I was. And, and I can sort of see that, you know, in the, in the many years when I start plugging that sort of into my life, it's it just sort of what developed was this desire to please people. And, mm. and that could look a lot of different ways. I mean, in a lot of different contexts. So when you were going to that, spending your five years at junior college, um, were you living at home at the time? Yeah, working full time, going to junior college. So you kind of had one foot in the home, still in that kind of environment, homeschool. Is I mean, even though you're growing up and graduated, probably having that comfortability. Comfort- comfortability really of saying home yet still trying to figure out how to live being an adult outside of the home. Well, and and this is where the timelines get confusing because I graduated high school. I think we took the the exam when I was 15. Oh, you're one of those. Yeah. Well, it was almost (laughs) kind of funny because my mom's like, Hey, we're going to have you guys go do this test next week. Mm -hmm. So here's a study booklet. Why don't you look through it? And then 
oh, this is your high school proficiency exam. If you pass it, then the state considers you graduated. And so we did that. We graduated. The state of California. Yeah. And <laughs> and um, it wasn't that we were done with homeschooling, but then we got to start junior college classes. Okay. So I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 doing junior college. So it wasn't like I was okay. 19 going five years. That's yeah. why this, oh, Okay. That's the, why I was making fun of you. The, 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 that's <laughs> part of the, when I think back, like, how, how were there enough years to, to work for the government for this long, to be at HSLDA yeah. for those six months, to go to college this long, to do, like, I still have a hard time because I don't know dates. I'm horrible with dates is one of my downfalls with history class. Mm-hmm. I, I, have a, I have no concept really of what dates and times. Um, but all this was happening when it was like, let's say 16 to 20. Okay. So maybe What did you do later. for the government during the, when... So very little, ironically. I, I Most was, people I was do a, very little when, a, when they work for the government. I was a paid intern um, for um, a, a fantastic man um, who worked for the state assembly. And, and he was fantastic. I wanted to go into politics when I started working with him. I really wanted to do that until I started working for politics. Right. It's usually how it works. Yeah. And it was no offense to him. He was, he was fantastic. But um, it was the same thing. It was sort of like this... I had very, very little responsibility of mm-hmm. any kind. And um, most of what I did was I, I would go with him to different things, different events, maybe up to the Capitol. Um, I, would, um, I would get there in the morning and cut out newspaper articles from, that dist- from our district, and I would put them into this format, and I would copy those and get them up to this Sacramento where he was so he could be in touch every day with what was going on in the district and be informed. And, mm-hmm. and there was miscellaneous things here and there, but that was like so you job. It was local? Yeah. Not you, you didn't go up to Sacramento at all. You sometimes I did. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I did with him, and um, yeah, it was it was neat. It was a ex- great exposure. Yeah. And um, I was doing college at the same time. So, but I think it it was one of those when I put these pieces together. It's like I I had these things I got to be involved in that are all sort of like I work for the government. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of this like pride in my position in my. My mom's Kathy Duffy. I work for the government. I know these people. I get to do that. And I think... It doesn't help with your humility at all, does it? Right. At all. And, and your sense of, like, if you're there, you have to keep going up. Mm-hmm. And if you fail, it, it it's a lot further to fall, at least in your own impression. And so mm-hmm. there's this attitude of sort of maintaining that notoriety of these things that you get to do or be a part of. Mm-hmm. And um, again, nobody's intention. I just think, you know, the pieces, when they get put together, created this desire to please and to, to measure up and have that I am different than other people kind of perspective. And, um, that, that, that particular piece runs through my whole life that if you're like everybody else, you're nothing special. And if you're nothing special, you're not lovable. Hmm. That's huge right there. The part about being lovable. What I was thinking while you were telling me that story about, um, I think that that's an issue with a lot of homeschoolers, especially during that time period. I don't know about now. Um, personally, we're not in the homeschooling movement now. We'll talk about you guys here in a little, in just a second. Um, but from my, what I've observed and experienced in my own life um, is a lot of the, things that made you feel good as a homeschooler was the fact that you were different and you're special because you're doing something that other people aren't doing. 
And because of that, you need to live up to a higher standard and don't let other people bring you down. You help bring people up and, um, you know, you need to be supposed to be separate, you know? Um, I can give you a story to back that exact point up too. In our, in our church, I remember distinctly, I started going to the church that we were going to for a long time when I was 16. Good friends of mine went there. Mm-hmm. Wednesday night, high school group. There were basically two distinct high school groups. The homeschoolers, who were also the Awana, and then no, every, I want, yeah, and everybody okay. else. I mean, you, you think about this. We're going to a Christian church, and we have two distinct high school groups, mm-hmm. basically. One's the Christian homeschooler, and the other was... And there was a... Sen- and, and I'm just as guilty. I was a part. I didn't go to Awana, but I was in the Christian homeschool part. Mm-hmm. There was an, a sense of superiority, spiritual superiority, academic superiority, and there was a massive wedge between these two mm-hmm. basically factions. It's not like they fought or anything, but they were divided, like distinctly divided. Mm-hmm. And it was really sad that that was going on in the church. But that same thing you're talking about, I've seen a lot. Mm. It's it's unfortunate, but and I, I and I think it's some of what you know. You say you you can pick picture or you can see a homeschooler from a mile away. Well, you can sense them coming too because you can sense their their pride or their arrogance. Honestly, yeah. A lot sometimes, of times. sometimes um, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that clues me in that I may be conversing with a homeschool uh, homeschooler is especially when they're younger is their ability to so clearly and comfortably communicate with adults. So yeah. I'll meet kids. Like when I met Silas the first time, it was interesting because that was my first impression was his ability to communicate and have eye contact mm-hmm. was so good. He must be a homeschooler. Mm-hmm. That was my impression. It's not always true, but like 90% of the time you can engage somebody maybe in their junior high, high school age mm-hmm. and go, you're a homeschooler, aren't you? It's like, yeah. How did you know? It's like, there's this comfort and ability to engage with people above your peer level. True. That's really impressive, you know? So yeah, there's, it's, it, there is some of the pride there can be. Yeah. There's, that, that, and the, jump, the pros and cons. The jumper know? and Bobby socks too. Oh my God. <laughs> We're going to get hate mail. <laughs> Send your uh, hate mail to Jesse Payne <laughs> at, uh, um, the good news is you spell your name slightly different. So nobody's going to be able to. Oh no, not, not they'll, at all. Not they'll at look all. it up. Um, so with your experiencing what you did, well, let's back back up. I was going to go further into your current experience with your kids. Um, what did you do then, say, after your experience with junior college? There was this overlap of, it's going to be hard to get the timelines correct, but I started working for Starbucks, which was a fantastic job. Um, was their coffee better back then? A little bit. Yeah, I was there for three years. It, it was a little better, and it was newer then, too. Like yeah. This was this is like 25, yeah. this is 25 years ago when they were first coming out. Um, yeah. So I did that, and then um, I think I was still in junior college a little bit when I was doing that. And that, that was okay. this... One thing I do appreciate actually about the homeschool world was um, because we were because we were helping with my mom's business, mm-hmm. we had to work. There was no like we were working from the my earliest memory. I was getting paid minimum wage to help with my mom's business, 
So I grew up with this mentality that you're six, seven years old, you should be working. Mm. And so I worked nonstop the whole time. The government job, the Starbucks mm-hmm. um, was doing school. And then at some point in there, uh, I got, I transitioned to, of all things, a construction company. A gentleman at my church had a um, insurance repair contracting business. And the guy was just a fantastic man of integrity, owned the company that I knew. Mm-hmm. And um, I came in at entry level working for them almost as labor. And um, I think it was there just a, a couple years, three years maybe. And they were willing to teach. I wanted to learn. They taught me things. I loved it, the hands-on, the building of things. And that then I stepped out and I worked with another gentleman um, and at that point I was basically an independent contractor had before that, had you had a business or, or a job where you were working with your hands? Uh, um, besides putting stuff together manually no, no, for your mom, nothing like that. Yeah. No, no, I didn't know anything about construction. What, what's hilarious. And this is sort of one of those, I look back, I only realized this six months ago. Um, I used to love designing house plans for fun. I would get these big two foot by three foot sheets of graph paper and I would draw houses for fun when I was a kid. It's what you call a clue. I, well, you would think so, except for I never put those pieces together, except for six months ago. I Because the to, houses were stayed on paper, not put together. Well, that's fairly brilliant, actually, now that I think about that. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed. It took me that long to figure that one out. Um, but yeah, and then I did that and I became an independent contractor for another gentleman. And then from there, I went out on my own. And then I've been doing that ever since on my own. Yeah. For, and you love it. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, that's a, with everything. I, I ran, I ran projects as you know, field supervisor, all on my own. Um, I have, I had employees at at, at points, and um, I do love the world of construction. I don't like the bureaucracy of construction, mm-hmm. so it's not as fun when when the municipalities make it more about getting money and rules and regulations, and it's harder to build. And it's always fun. fun until the government steps in, right? Basically, yeah. it is, and. Um, what I really love, though, and what I get to finally do now moving here was the guy, I'm all the same thing. I'm an independent contractor. Kind of, He treats me like a partner, which is really a huge blessing. Um, and I was running projects for him, but now I've transitioned, so now I get to do all the design development. So in this crazy, weird yeah. world here, I am now designing homes and helping clients figure out what they want and designing it with them and helping them to bring their dreams out and... I love that because I like working with people. I like helping people think through things. Mm-hmm. I like them processing through things. I like, I love that. And I love designing. And um, so it is weird to me to see this connection. So I love what I'm doing now. I don't really want to go back into running jobs day to day. True. I, 20 years of doing that, I'm kind of over the whole thing. Well, you learn so, what you don't like to do and... If you get an opportunity where that's a possibility where you might be doing, you delegate that. Yeah. And I can go back and do it. I don't mind, you know, here and there. Like I am running mm-hmm. a job right now when I designed, it was just kind of complicated. So it was one of those where, well, I'm just going to need to run this. Um, and I don't mind doing that. But the the angst of running jobs is, I don't want that in my life anymore. Yeah. The, I, you know, you're, you're. I, I grew up loving rain. Then you get into construction and I'm terrified of rain because all you can imagine is, <laughs> did I cover that thing oh, up? Yeah. Is something getting ruined? Is yeah. something getting destroyed? I remember can't sleep. one job I had with people. We were redoing their whole kitchen, a huge, oh. huge job. And they ordered all their cabinetry from a company. I forget if it was Lowe's or something. 
and it wasn't me. They were responsible for getting all their cabinets and everything. They got them. They got them delivered. The company put them all in the driveway. I woke up that night at like one or two in the morning, and I think there was a little bit of rain. So I drove to their house in the middle of the night because I was like, but if their cabinets get ruined, what's, and it wasn't even my responsibility, but mm-hmm. it was just like that angst of, oh my gosh, this is going to ruin the job. It's going to ruin, they're going to be heartbroken. What's it going to, you know? Yeah. And I get there like 2 a.m. in the morning and then they're out there, sure enough, trying to get plastic covering their cabinets. But, but every time it would rain, I'm stressed. Mm. And, um, and it's because of that, you know, anyway, so. Expectations. Yeah. Ironically, because mm-hmm. you are performing, mm-hmm. you're performing a task and there's very, very, and they're very, very critical of how you're performing that task. Mm-hmm. And, and to be fair though, if you're diligent, you can do a really good job yes. for your clients. Yep. And so it was more on, look, if I'm responsible and diligent, I can do a good job for them and what I'm providing them. If I'm lazy, if I take on too much and if I'm stretched too thin and I know it, mm-hmm. then I'm going to do a bad job and I deserve like I had one, I'll never forget. It was one of those, you know, those moments in your life where somebody speaks up in a way that you're terrified of, but it was the truth. Dan was one of those, which was amazing. I had one other big one, uh, a gentleman named Joe. I think he lives in Vermont now. I was working at his house and I was honestly doing too many projects. I was supposed to be responsible to make sure their house was locked up after the guys were finished with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I did not make sure it was done. And I came to their house late one day. He was already home. The house hadn't been locked up. And Mm. it was one of those, he was super nice, but he's like, I'd like to take you to coffee and I'd like to talk with you. And he lovingly, but very sternly was, I can't trust you because this is what you were supposed to do. This is what you didn't do. And I'm concerned about the way that you're, you know, it was just one of those that I'll never forget. It was great because he was dead on accurate mm-hmm. about the whole thing. But but it was completely my fault because especially in the world of construction, I don't know how it is because that's been my frame of reference for so long. Mm-hmm. It, there's always the fear in your own business. If you don't say yes to everything, where's my, where's my next yep. income going to come from? I have yep. to say yes to everything. The problem with that is then you're exponentially increasing the likelihood that you're going to disappoint and do a bad job yep, or make a mistake or make a mistake. Yeah. And, and which that fear just actually leads to more ruin. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the times when you, when you say honestly to people, you know, I'd love to help you. Unfortunately, I can't do it right now. If you're willing to wait three months, I would love to do it. And if they say, no, I can't wait that long being okay. And trusting that God's going to provide. Yep. But that moment of fear, especially in the construction world, is huge. And so a lot of a lot of the time we get ourselves into those pickles because we just say yes. And we're not honest with people because we're afraid of the idea of, well, what about if I don't get this? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's all just a will God provide issue at its core. Um, but it's a rubber meets the road when, when it's your own business and it's all dependent upon you. But yep. then you experience what I experience is, what, is you disappoint and you fail. And those are those moments, back to the main point you were bringing up earlier, is you don't meet the expectation and they see you for what you really are and what you know you really are. And that's terrifying because it's the one thing you don't want people to shine a light on mm-hmm. because you don't want to believe it's true. You think it's true about yourself. You kind of know it's true in some, in some ways, at least you think it, you think you do. Um, but when those moments happen where somebody shines a light on it that you cannot deny, that's sort of this, your whole world just, 
crumbles. Mm. It's, and I think that's why I remember those moments so, so blatantly mm. that those are those just like, <sighs> what do I do now? Yeah. So that was a little bit of a tangent. I know it's connected some way, but no, uh, I was just thinking that is a really good pausing point to maybe move on to episode two. <laughs> <laughs>